Hello and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Jared Van Vorst and I'm your host for the show and one of the pastors at Life Church. And today you're going to hear a sermon from me uh, as we continue in our series called Galatians. We're uh, we're into chapter two now. So if you listen to this podcast and you have a Bible nearby, you can always get ready to go there first. Um, also, I, we did something just a little bit different where we had some crowd participation and interaction toward the end of the message. I had people um, use a pen and paper. So if you're nearby, uh, some pen and paper or pencil and paper, grab that. And I would love for you to engage with this sermon as well. Now, if you're driving, uh, just disregard all of that and keep your eyes on the road. Also want to let you know that if you've never subscribed to this podcast, you can go ahead and do that um, so that you can get regular updates whenever we update our podcasts. Um, you can get news and information at lifechurchcanton.org slash now. And if you would like to give to the work of Life Church and um, be a part of all of the things that we get to do to impact the kingdom of God, uh, I would encourage you to do that as well. You can do, do that by going to lifechurchcanton.org slash give. Now, enjoy the sermon. Welcome, my name is Jared, and I'm one of the pastors. Welcome to Life Church. Uh, families who are dedicating your children, we're so excited for you, and uh, we're excited to spend some more time with you out in the pavilion after this service as well. And, and all of those watching online and uh, listening to the podcast a little bit later on, thank you for joining us as well. If uh, on your way in, you received a paper, piece of paper and a pen that is intentional, hold on to that. Uh, we're going to use that a little bit later on in the message. And for those of you watching online, I'm going to encourage you, if you have a pen and paper handy or nearby, grab that because I want you to be able to engage with us as well. Um, we are in a series called Galatians. We've been looking at the letter written by Paul to a church in Galatia. This isn't just some book that was written. It was actually a letter written to real-life people, encouraging them in their faith. And up to this point so far, if you've been with us for a little bit, we've been looking at this letter, and the contents of this letter have been dealing with sort of external matters. We've been talking about Paul and how he's having to sort of convince his audience why he's credible, why they should listen to him, because they've gotten sort of away from understanding the gospel and the grace found only in Jesus. They've sort of gone a different way, made it about legalism. And so there's, there's been a lot of tension up to this point and, and a lot of external matters that we've been talking about. If you've had a hard time sort of finding yourself in the letter, that's okay. Uh, there's been a lot of things that have been very contextual to this specific church. But I think today, you're actually going to start to see a little bit more of the internal matters, matters of the heart that we're going to go after as we sort of turn the corner in this next section of the letter. I'm going to be in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11 in just one moment. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question, just by a show of hands for those of you in the room, and you can comment online as well. How many of you have had to do some kind of video chatting in the last year? Whether it's Zoom, okay, yeah, a lot of hands going up, and you've gotten to the point where it's like every day, all day long, you're on Zoom. Yeah, and I wonder, I would ask you this question, how many of you look at the people on the call or look at yourself the whole time? Be honest, right? Like you're trying to figure out, okay, is this side better? I've got a mole on this side, so I'm going to... I'm going to be on my call like this the whole time, you know, because that's my good side. And you're constantly looking up at that little box and staring at yourself and evaluating yourself, like moving that one hair, not for me, I'm just hypothetically for you, moving that one hair in the right place, right, so that you look your best self, right? 
This is what Zoom has done to us in this last year. And actually, psychologists have recognized that this is actually a deep matter. And what one psychologist said is this. In real life, when you talk to someone, you aren't also seeing yourself. Maybe we've forgotten that that's actually how two-way com- communication goes. But you aren't also seeing yourself when you're in a real-life conversation. But on a video chat, as you talk, you're watching yourself. And you're watching yourself vocalize the words and react to what other people are saying. And as you're seeing yourself, you're beginning to wonder, well, how do others see me? You're, you're maybe getting a little bit insecure. What are people noticing? And that, combined with the pressure of prolonged eye contact, can be exhausting, which is why we talk about Zoom fatigue, right? Sometimes people even feel like they have to perform over-the-top reactions in order to, you know, really say, oh, yeah, I'm totally engaged in this conversation to prove that they're present and listening. So if you're staring at yourself, don't worry. Nobody notices because they're all doing the same thing. This is what Zoom culture has done to us, video chat culture has done to us, and and in a lot of ways it's been extremely helpful uh, to have the technology to be able to do this in the middle of a pandemic, but it's had a downside as well, a shadow side, if you will. And the reason I keep saying a psychologist noticed this is because many more people have sought out uh, psychological help and, and therapy, and that's good. That's good that people are reaching out to find that help, but what they're finding is that what Zoom culture is doing is, is creating a new sense of our self, self-worth, our self-absorption, our selfishness. And it, what I would say is we have developed an even greater warped sense of ourselves. And this isn't just because of Zoom, right? I mean, that, certainly that has enhanced it and, and provided more unique ways of how we view ourselves. This is an ancient truth. This goes all the way back to the beginning of time. We have a warped sense of self because of sin, because of fracture because of brokenness in our world. This is just a new way to package this warped sense of self. And Paul's letter, where we're looking at today, in chapter 2, verse 11, gets at the heart of this matter. It's going to take a while to sort of unpack it, but we're going to get through it, and, and I think you're going to see how this sense of ourself can be unhealthy at times. And so let's talk about that. Verse 11, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. Let me just pause for a second. Paul is sort of recounting a situation that has happened uh, with Peter. Peter, if you're newer to the Bible, Peter's kind of one of the heroes of the faith. He was really close, connected to Jesus, followed Jesus, was one of Jesus' closest followers. He's, he's kind of a big deal. And Paul is invoking Peter's name to say, hey, th- there was a scuffle that went on. There was an argument between me and Peter, and that's what he's beginning to talk about, for what he did was very wrong. Verse 12, when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. Huge deal in the Jewish world. Uh, Jewish custom is you, you don't even associate with Gentiles, let alone eat with them. But this is what Peter is doing. He's eating with the Gentile believers who are not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, another Jew, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of the criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. That part we've been talking about these last couple weeks. If you haven't heard any of those messages, go back and listen to those. And then verse 13, as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led led astray by their hypocrisy. So what's going on here? So what Paul's doing is he's recounting 
sort of Peter's role in all of this. And it goes all the way back to a story that you can read about in Acts chapter 10, where Peter is, like I said, he's one of the, the closest followers of Jesus. He spent the most time with Jesus. And what Jesus has been doing with Peter and with the other disciples is to say, hey guys, this isn't just for us. This isn't just for our insider group, just for the Jews. This is going to go beyond me. But they didn't get it until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's not until Acts chapter 10 when Peter actually receives a vision from God saying, hey, you need to accept the Gentiles into the family of God. And then he says it again. And then he says it again, and Peter doesn't get it. It takes three times for Peter to get this vision that God is saying, you need to include the Gentiles into the family of God. They are part of this thing because of what I have done in Christ Jesus. It's a big deal. Peter doesn't, he's actually resistant to it. He doesn't get it. Finally, he gets it, and he goes on to say to the other disciples after he's received this vision and after he's actually like taken it in and be like, oh yeah, I, I should probably do what God tells me to do. And he goes to the other disciples and he says, I now see that God shows no favoritism. There's no more favoritism. There is level playing, level playing field and ground at the foot of the cross. We are all part of this family. And it doesn't matter about any of the laws, about the circumcision, about any of the other legalism that we have adopted. And so what Paul is saying is, you have done that. You have gone and, and lived in that freedom of Christ. You've enjoyed the freedom of Christ alongside Gentiles. And that's good. That's actually a good thing. You've done that. But then the bad thing is, is that when some other Jewish people who came along and said, oh no, you're not actually supposed to be doing that, uh, you're supposed to be following the law, you totally did a 180. You flipped. You became a hypocrite. That's a, a Greek term in the theater, actually. Hypocrite is this word of a, of a play actor who would put on a, a mask to be a different character. This is the word that Paul uses. You're a different person. You're two-faced. You're trying to mix these two different groups of people, and you have a double standard. You're a hypocrite. I think about it this way. One of my uh, favorite comedians, he's fairly clean, uh, Jim Gaffigan, he, he talks about this one moment. He says, have you ever had to mix two different groups of friends that don't know each other, but now they're going to get to know each other? Have you ever had to mix two different groups of friends? That can be stressful. He says, you always feel like you have to prep them ahead of time. You're like, um, hey, uh, these people don't know I drink. And uh, don't be thrown off by my British accent as well. <laughs> it's, it, the reason it was funny to me because I was that person. I, I was like super involved in church and in youth group, in high school and, and even into college. But I also had this other lifestyle that only a few people knew about, that I was into partying and drinking and smoking drugs and like all this other stuff. And then there was moments where these two groups of people were getting together and I felt like I had to prep like my party friends like, hey, uh, they don't know that I do all of these things. So let's just keep it on the down low. Like, like super uncomfortable. Lived a two-faced life. How much more for Peter in matters of salvation, in matters of faith, in inclusion, in the family of God? He's got this two-faced life, and Paul is calling him out on it. I want to ask you a question about yourself, but I want you to recognize that something. There is a warped sense of self that we have, and a warped sense of self doesn't necessarily just affect the person that's involved. It also affects the others. 
It affects the church. It affects Barnabas and the others that are led astray to follow Peter's example. Let me ask you, are you the same person regardless of who you're around? Do you ever struggle with moments where you're trying to figure out which face you need to put on for display? What about in social media? Is the person you are on social media the same person you are in real life? Paul's like, Peter, it's not just about you. It's affecting the church around you. In verse 14, he says, When I saw that you were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all of the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make the Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Again, Paul's not calling him out for living like a Gentile. He's saying, no, it's, it's actually good that you have uh, joined them. You've come into solidarity with them. You are enjoying your freedom in Christ. Good job. Way to go. But since you've done that and now you're not, now we have issues. Not only is this just an issue for Peter, but this is extremely disorienting for the Gentiles. Imagine having this, this figure in Peter who's kind of a big deal in the faith, knew Jesus a whole lot, is now coming, and, and, and he's not just hanging out with you, he's actually like eating a meal with you, doing life with you. How incredibly beautiful would that have been, and how would that feel as a Gentile to be like, oh my gosh, this person is doing life with me. I, I can't even believe that they're like sharing bread with me. Only to have that same person come back to you the next day and said, hey, actually all of those rules you have to follow now. Forget about all of that other stuff. You have to follow all these rules. That would have been incredibly disorienting. Maybe you know about authority figures that have, you've had in your life who have been sort of at your level, sort of lighthearted, jovial, but then all of a sudden the next day they change and they're back to being the authority figure. That's, it's really weird. I had this kind of funny moment in high school when I was a freshman, went to my science class, and we had a great teacher, a good teacher. Um, he'd been around for like 20, 25 years, and so he was highly respected in the school, and every once in a while he'd sort of be lighthearted with us. And this one day I went into class, and uh, before we got started, he was just joking around with us, and then he actually told us this joke. And it wasn't like one of those dad jokes where you're kind of like giving a charity laugh. It's not really all that funny, but you're like, Haha, okay, move on. It, it was like a good one. It, was, it actually made me laugh a lot. And so he tells this joke, I laugh, and then he's like, all right, everybody, let's uh, open up our textbooks, let's get to our class. I'm still laughing because I'm thinking about the joke, and I'm like talking about it with a friend sitting next to me, and then all of a sudden I hear, Jared, go to the principal. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you told the joke. I'm laughing at you, the thing that you just said. I felt incredibly betrayed by this science teacher. So I had to go to the principal's office and explain why I was at the principal's office for laughing at a joke that my teacher told. Anyway, it, it, it's disorienting. It throws you off when you have this person who's respected, who's an authority figure, who is at your level, and then all of a sudden they turn on you and say, nope, you've got to follow all these rules. It's been really hard for the Gentiles, feeling betrayed, feeling disoriented. Paul goes on in verse 15, he says, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. It's kind of a confusing phrase, but I'll come back to it in just a second. You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles, verse 16, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. 
And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Peter's doing uh, sort of an interesting rhetorical trick here. What he's, what he's doing is he's not trying to make a dig at the Gentiles to say, like, we're Jews by birth, but they're sinners, the Gentiles are sinners, and that's not what he's actually doing. He's not being derogatory toward the Gentiles in any way. What he's doing is he's holding up this thing, this standard that they've believed for centuries only so that he can knock it down and say, actually, that thing is a joke. It's false. It's warped. You and I are Jews by birth. Ooh, look at us. Look at us. And they're sinners. The Gentiles are sinners. But then he completely exposes the ridiculousness of that in verse 16. Hey, guess what? It has nothing to do with the fact that we were born Jewish and that they were born Gentiles. We're all sinners. All of us, Paul says in another letter, all of us have fallen short. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard, which is why our faith in Christ is the only thing that unites us. It's the only thing that makes us right with God. Following the law just exposes how much of a failure we all are. It's an interesting rhetorical thing that Paul does here. Our Jewishness, in a sense, doesn't matter. Now, I want to be sensitive here because I recognize the gravity of what I just said especially in the midst of an Israeli and Palestinian conflict that's going on right now. But what I'm not saying is a political concept that we're talking about, and Paul isn't talking politically here. This is a theological point that Paul is making, that our Jewishness in terms of our theology, in terms of how we understand God and salvation and what it means to be included into the family of God, none of that matters because we're all sinners foot of the cross. A warped sense of self tries to put us into competition with others. Well, at least I'm not like them. At least I don't do what they do. At least I don't look like that person. At least I don't struggle with the same sins that that person struggles with. No. It doesn't matter. We don't put ourselves into hierarchies or categories Paul says we are made right with God, not by anything that we've done, but simply by our faith in him. He goes on to say in verse 17, suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. He doesn't even give an opportunity for him to kind of figured that out or try to think through it. No, absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law. In other words, if I go back to this system that we have embraced for hundreds and hundreds of years, that's actually worse. I'm worse off if I actually try to go back to legalism. If at one point I understood freedom in Christ and God's grace, but actually began to cling to the old ways of thinking, I'm actually much worse off. I'm worse off. Rather, if I am a, I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. It exposed my failure. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. 
this particular section might be a little bit harder for us if we're newer to the Bible or specifically for us as sort of modern Western thinkers. Uh, this is a very Jewish idea, sort of drawing upon the traditions of their faith. The fact that they would cling to the law, the, the fact that the law was, in a sense, their identity. It's who they were. It's who they are. And I'm not talking about just some like sort of measly traditions like grandma always brings the same bread pudding to Thanksgiving. That, that's not what I'm talking about here. Like somebody changes that and it throws everybody off. That's, that's not the kind of traditions we're talking about. We're talking about centuries-long traditions that have been so woven into their fabric of who they are. It is their identity. And so in a sense, there's some empathy here when Paul says, suppose, you know, suppose we just make it about faith in Christ and we abandon the law. What he's doing is he's saying, look, I, I get it. There, there's some fear and hesitancy here because it, it feels safe, it feels familiar to go back to our legalistic ways because that's all we've ever known. Change is hard. Absolutely it is. And Paul recognizes that. He's actually trying to empathize with Peter and with some of the other Jewish Christians at the time to say, suppose we do this and we actually get in trouble. We move away from the thing that we always knew. He says, absolutely not. That's not why Christ came. Christ came to make this tradition of the law and legalism obsolete. It's not important anymore. That would be a big deal. That would be disorienting for the Jewish Christians to recognize that the thing that they found their identity in is now no longer their identity. And imagine what that would do to oneself. Who am I now? Who, who are we as a people? How do I understand myself? When you have a warped sense of self, you have this idea of who you think you are, and then you realize that that's actually not who you are. Well, then who are you really? You have to reconstruct this new idea of how you identify yourself. Where is my identity? How do I know myself? How do I understand myself? How do I explain myself to others? Paul doesn't leave him hanging. He goes to verse 20. He says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. Not just put away in a box and hid in the closet, only to be returned again. No, my old self has been crucified, killed, put to death with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, we, we could look at this verse and say, so it's just not about you. It's not about you. It's only about Christ. And some theologies actually would do that. They would say, no, you're, you're depraved, you're wicked, you're evil, there is nothing good in you, there is not a single shred of positivity within you, so what you need to do is remove yourself completely from the process and let Christ stand there so God no longer looks at you because you're a worthless piece of trash, but he can look at Jesus because Jesus is good, Jesus is cool. And so you just get out of the way. And some people even pray that, like, God, get me out of the way so people can hear you. Well, then what am I doing on the stage to begin with? Why even stand here? Why even come here? Why even watch online if it's actually not still 
about you in a way. So yeah, it's a bit of a paradoxical statement here to say it's not about you and yet it is about you. More specifically, it's not about you and the old ways of your thinking and the old uh, version of yourself. It's not about your old self, but it's about your new self. And that new self, what Paul describes, is the Christ within you. So think about it like this way. Think of yourself as a container, right? And when you say, my old self is crucified, what you're doing is you're emptying the container out of all of the contents of the things that think make you but aren't who you really are. The things that we hold up as our identity. I used to play professional football. I used to do this for a job. I used to have this income level. I still have this car. Like all of the things that we think make our identity. We empty ourselves. We empty the container of all of the false things about our identity. Only so that the container still remains and Christ fills us. Christ becomes the contents within our container. So now we are working in partnership as the Holy Spirit leads us and we live out the things that Christ calls us to. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. This isn't some idea of you becoming a robot and just getting rid of all of your personality, getting rid of your passions, your gifts, your little idiosyncrasies that make you you. That's not what we're talking about here. In fact, all of those things actually become enhanced and transformed when Christ fills you. There is a uniqueness about you that should be celebrated, that God wants actually to bring to the surface, to put on display. And so what he's saying is we need to put to death the old self, or we might even call it the false self. There is a sense of your false self versus your true self. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the false self. Who are you really beneath the surface? I want you to think about it in this way. Now's the time. You can, if you want to, you can get that piece of paper out and you can write this on one side of the paper. Save the other side of the paper because we're going to do something there too. But I want you to write out these words. Surfacey things, Sinful things, statements, and senses. I'll say them again. Surfacy things, sinful things, statements, and senses. Here's what we do. We, we have created a false self throughout the course of our life. And not all of the false self is bad. Some of it is just, it's just surfacey things about who we are, who we've become, right? So my income level is who I am. My house, the neighborhood I live in, that's who I am. My, uh, my car that I drive, the, the job that I have, these are all, none of these are bad things in and of themselves, but when we introduce ourselves to a new person, we describe ourselves using these words. Well, I do this for a living. I live in this neighborhood. I go to this school. And none of those things are wrong. They're just, they're surfacy. That's not who you really are. If you strip those things away, there's still you. There's still part of you. There's a deeper part of you. It's a matter of tapping into that. So sometimes we have these surfacy things. Sometimes it is 
sinful things. Sometimes we identify ourselves by our mistakes. And if we're followers of Jesus, we think about the things in which have taken us from God, have, have, have sort of barricaded us from experiencing the love of God. Sometimes we can only think about ourselves by our mistakes, by our sins. Sometimes it's statements that we have come to believe about ourselves. Maybe it's statements that others have said to us, and maybe they weren't true, but we have believed them to be true. And then sometimes it's just a sense that we have, just a feeling that we have about ourselves, and that's how we construct our identity. All of that is the false self. Paul says we need to crucify the old self, the false self, the things that, that's not who you really are. That's not who you are. There's more to you. There is a true self that can be discovered, but only can be discovered in Christ. When Christ is within you, Christ now lives in you, in this earthly body, as you trust in him, because he loved you and he gave himself for you so that you might discover who you really are and who God has called you to be. The true self is the one that doesn't rely on you, the false sense of you, but relies on the Christ within you. Let me say that one more time. The true self is a version of you that doesn't rely on you, but relies on the Christ that is within you. And so now you have a new title, And that title isn't boss, isn't associate, isn't professor. That title is child of God. Why not teenager? Why not young adult? Why not adult of God? A child of God, because a child isn't fully developed, is still very much in process, is still figuring things out. A child can't do everything on their own. A child is constantly dependent on somebody else. You're a child of God so that you still continue to rely on God. And only when you do that will you begin to discover who you truly are in Christ. The true self is, in a sense, discovering who you truly are, but also it's not just about you. And that's actually a positive statement. It's about what God is doing in and through you as well. We read this in another letter that Paul says to the Ephesians. He says, for we are God's workmanship. We are God's masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the works that he created long ago for us to do. God is inviting us to be part of something. That's why the theologies that would say you're dirty, ugly, wicked because of your sin, so just get out of the way and let Jesus do his thing, doesn't work because you're still this container that Jesus enters into to go and be about the work of renewal and redemption in the world filled with brokenness. There's still a purpose for you. The true self has a purpose. And Paul finishes this section of the letter by saying, I don't treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. It's a bold statement. He's saying, Galatians, think very clearly and deeply about this. Think about how 
intense and deep this is that Christ would come and die. Why would you go back to the old way of doing things? Otherwise, Christ died in vain. No, Christ came so that you might have freedom, so that you might have redemption, so that you might have salvation, so that you can understand who you truly are. Going back to the false self is going to be more destructive than simply enjoying the freedom that comes in Christ. I think about it like this as a sort of a real visceral illustration. Sometimes you've had these opportunities where, uh, or these moments where you had to wear a particular item of clothing, but you realized you didn't wash it yet. You know what I'm talking about? You go into the laundry room and you see in the dirty clothes basket, there's that shirt that you were supposed to wear today, but it didn't get washed, it didn't get dried, it didn't get ironed out, and so now it's still there. And you see it and you're like, okay, I gotta wear it. And so you dig through that dirty laundry and you pull it out and it's all wrinkly and it still smells like the burrito that you had the other day when you were wearing it and the sweat that you had because it was a 90 degree day in Michigan, but then it turned to 45 degrees somehow. I'm not really sure how that works. And you're like, I got to still wear that shirt. And so you put that thing on and oh, the smells are just glorious, right? And you remember all the things and you go out and you just feel like you're emitting this like green haze as you walk around, right? It's disgusting. How much more do we go back to legalism, to the old ways of doing things? to judging others, to, for those of us who have been Christians longer, we have at one moment in time enjoyed this freedom in Christ and the joy that comes with knowing that God's grace is what saved us, nothing else. But then after a while, we grow and we're, we're part of the church for a little bit longer and then all of a sudden we start adopting these new rules that we never believed in before, that we never followed before, and we actually project them onto other new Christians and say, no, you have to do this thing. You have to be this high to ride this ride. You have to have this standard of life in order to be part of the family of God, even though we never believed that in the first place. It's like going back and putting on a dirty, wrinkly shirt and wearing that as though it's normal. Don't go back to the old ways. And don't expect others to do it as well. The true self is a child of God because they're continuing to learn and trust and rely on him who lives in us. Which means we have to crucify the old ways, not get it out from the closet and pull it out and start rummaging through it again. No, put it to death. Remove it. Paul uses clothing imagery as well in other letters in the New Testament. He says, clothe yourself. Put on new clothes, clothes of humility and joy and compassion, love. This is the life we adopt in Christ, and that is how we discover our true self. So here's what I want to do. I want us to draw a self-portrait and you will be turning to this in at the end of class, and I will be just, no, this is not how this works. No, for some, for some times uh, throughout my faith, doing visual tactile things have been helpful for me. Uh, I, I was an art student in college for a little while, and so drawing just seemed to make sense to me. And 
and what I would do, all the way back, I can remember back to going to an old church and old stinky pews, and, uh, and they had these little golf pencils, right, uh, with the announcements on a bulletin, and I would just find any empty space on that page that I could, and I would just be doodling the whole time. Now, my mom thought I wasn't paying attention. My dad was up in the choir loft, so he couldn't discipline us. I have three older sisters, so my mom would sit in between, two on, two on each side, and her arms were just long enough to where she could flick me in the back of my ear every single time that I was drawing and not paying attention in church. But what she didn't realize is actually that was actually helping me to be able to connect. I was actually still listening. I just had to listen and draw at the same time. We have life kids. They still do arts and crafts. Why do we give that up as adults? I mean that seriously. Like There are some ways in which we can connect to God through writing, journaling, drawing sometimes, just doodling. And so I wanted to provide an opportunity for you to do that for the rest of our time here. I want you to draw a self-portrait. Now, I don't know if you saw the picture up on the screen just a moment ago. Uh, during the pandemic, I was really bored and did a self-portrait, and uh, it turned out okay, I think, but uh, that's not what we're looking for here, okay? This is not what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to be an artistic genius by any means, but maybe just draw an outline of yourself. And what I want you to do, more importantly, is on the left-hand side of that page, I want you to consider, how do you see yourself? And I want you to begin to write out some things. Go back to that conversation that we were having a moment ago about Zoom. When you stare at yourself, what do you see? I'm not just talking about physically speaking. Do you like what you see? Or do you judge what you see? Are you ashamed? I want you to write out some of those things that are part of your false self. I'll say them again. It's the things that are surfacy. Maybe sometimes they're the things that are sinful, the mistakes that you keep going back to, that you keep making. Maybe it's statements, things that have been said about you, or maybe things that you've said to yourself that you've begun to believe, or maybe it's just a sense that you have. And just continue to write out some of those things on the left-hand side of that page. If you want to draw things too, you could do that as well. I want to give you more ways to think about this, but I want to be careful because I don't want you to hear something that I say and then say, oh yeah, that, that's me and I'll write that down. I really want it to be true to who you think is your false self, but I do want to give you some idea of how to think about this. Some of the surfacey things I've already mentioned, sometimes we identify ourselves by our income level, by the neighborhood we live in, the house we own, the car we own, the job we have. Again, not bad things. That's just not who you really are. That's not what makes you, you. Maybe it's sinful things, things that you've done, things that you've left undone, and now you've gotten to this place where you feel unworthy to be accepted by God. Maybe you have this belief that God says, well, now I could never accept them because, well, that sin, that's just too much. That's part of your false self. It's just not true. Maybe it's statements. I'm too fat. I'm too skinny. I'm too bald. I'm too serious, too intellectual, too silly, whatever it is that you've believed about yourself. Maybe it's something more external. Maybe for some of you, your melanin has made you appear dangerous, untrustworthy, or even criminal. 
just because of the way that you look. And maybe you've believed that despicable lie. And you've never been told that actually your color, no matter what it is, is beautiful. There's some of you that can't change things about yourself that others see as a defect. And so now you're trying to figure out how to learn to embrace that. And for others, maybe your gender or your sexuality is, you think, the core of who you are. And then for some, it is a sense. And what I mean by that, and I've experienced this all throughout my pastoral ministry time in engaging in one-on-one conversations with people, sometimes they just say, you know what, Jared, I just, I just feel unlovable. How could anybody love me? This is all part of the false self. That's not who you really are. And Paul says, we put our old self, our false self to death. We crucify it. And then we begin to discover the true self. Now, I've said that a couple times, and I wonder if that might be a trigger for some of us in the room. We feel like, wait, discover your true self? That sounds a little Eastern mysticism. That sounds like New Agey stuff. Can I just remind us, Jesus was in the Middle East, okay? He is an Eastern person. The people that he ministered to are Eastern people. And for some reason, somewhere along the way, we thought that Christianity developed in America. We thought that we developed it in the West, and we have neglected a lot of the ways in which the Eastern side of the world has been able to connect to God. And I wonder if sometimes we miss out on our connection to God. When I say discover your true self, that's not just some weirdo, new agey kind of thing. I'm taking it right out of Galatians 2.20. That we put our old self to death and that we allow Christ to fill us. That sounds a little mystical, doesn't it? To fill us, to make us new, to live within us. Because that's where we discover truth and a true sense of ourselves. On that right-hand side of the page, I want you to explore your true self. How do we do that? In some ways, it's just going back to Scripture and being reminded of what God says about you. You're loved. You're precious. You're a masterpiece. Because of your job, because of your income level, because of the car you own? No, no, no not by anything you've done, not by anything you've earned, but because of Christ. Sometimes identifying your true self might actually be looking at the false self statements and just crossing them off, crucifying them, and writing the opposite version of whatever that statement is or that word is. Or if it's a false statement, what is the true statement? What is the opposite and true statement? If it's a sin, the true self is saved by grace. 
I want you to do this. We're going to sing another song. And I don't want you to stand and sing right away. I actually want you to sit with this and continue to reflect and continue to write or draw or whatever it is that you need to do to go through this process. Because for some of you, this might just be actually a painful process and maybe even a healing one. And it takes time. And I want you to take this into the next week as well. We've been reminding you to read the letter of Galatians. You can do that, keep doing that, but specifically, I want you to take time to meditate on Galatians 2.20, and I want to read it one more time. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're listening today, and you're like, I don't know if Christ lives in me. I don't know what that's like. And maybe you're at a point where the false self has taken over and you're just living into that reality. And you didn't realize that there's another way, that there's a true way. And so if that's you, I want to invite you to pray along with me a simple prayer. God, I empty the contents of my container all of the things that are false, that are lies, that are untrue. I try to find my self-worth in my looks, in my income, in my job status, in my title. But when all of that is stripped away, I'm still left with this empty container. And so now I ask you, Jesus, to fill me, to make me new to make me whole. And it's only by your grace. Come into my life, Jesus. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Pray that it inspired you in some way, and I would love for you to get connected as well. So the best way to do that is to go to lifechurchcanton.org slash now, and we would love to connect with you there. Have a great rest of your day. We'll see you back here real soon.